1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Jim Stein, your host for New Books and Math, a channel of the New Books Network. Our guest today is Al Pozamentier, author of Math Tricks. Well, I would quibble slightly with the choice of titles. Math doesn't involve tricks in the deceptive sense of the word. I would have chosen something like puzzles or brain teasers rather than tricks but I think this book has a lovely assortment of puzzles from all areas of mathematics. Some will be familiar to many readers, but there are plenty of ones I'd never seen before, and I've seen lots of them. Some are at just the right level to intrigue students who may be put off by the dry way a lot of math courses are taught, and this alone is enough to make any parent consider having the book available when their child says that they hate math. Math is valuable not just because we can use it to balance our checking account, or send rockets to the moon, but because it helps us think. And this book presents a lot of math in a very appealing fashion. Al, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Al, what you describe as math tricks really aren't tricks in the sense of the word that we normally think of tricks when we see a magic show. The tricks in your book are about the many surprising and intriguing truths that are hidden in the mathematical structures we investigate. The first chapter of the book is about arithmetical tricks, some of these are shortcuts that speed up calculations, such as how you can take advantage of the equality twenty five equals one hundred divided by four to multiply a number such as forty eight by twenty five You simply divide forty eight by four getting twelve, and then multiply by one hundred, getting twelve hundred before looking at a few of these. do you think that calculators have rendered these tricks obsolete?
0: No, I don't think so. I think the tricks are there to do two things. One, it helps uh, in some calculations and when you can do them uh, mentally very quickly, more quickly than you can uh, with a calculator, it's very helpful. And on the other end of the scale, it motivates young people to enjoy and appreciate as power.
1: No question about that. Well, let's get on to some of the tricks. I've always felt that not enough attention is paid to the number 11. How can you multiply a two-digit number by 11?
0: Well, that's something that's so simple, and yet uh, people are always amazed when you show it to them. If you multiply the number 23 times 11, all you need to do is add the 2 and the 3, which is 5, and stick it between the 2 and the 3 to get 253. And nothing could be easier than that when it when you have a two-digit number where the sum of the digits is a single digit. If it's a l- larger number... Let's say uh, seventy-eight uh, times eleven. You'd had seven plus eight was fifteen, so you put the five in the middle, and you have to add one to the seven, so you get eight fifty-eight. In other words, uh, it's something that can be done mentally, and it's a lot of fun because when you show it to anybody, even across a dinner table, it says, "Oh my God, why didn't I ever? Why didn't they ever show that to me? You know, why do the teachers keep that a secret?" So these are fun things, and of course, you can extend it, In a, in a, uh, a teacher might want to extend it to three-digit numbers and four-digit numbers, multiplying by 11. The same scheme, but a little bit more complicated, where you write it down, but you don't have to do the actual calculation.
1: Yeah, I think some of those tricks are used by speed calculators, and some of them, I think, the speed calculators have brains that are wired a little differently, um, Multiplication is important, but there are lots of tricks that involve divisibility. How can we tell if a number is divisible by 3 or divisible by 9?
0: And that's, again, one of those very simple things which we can justify if we have to algebraically or looking at numbers. If you take any number and uh, you add the digits, if the sum of the digits is divisible by 3... Then the number itself was divisible by three, and the same is true for nine. For example, if we take the number, let's say uh, one two three four, just to pick a number, and we add those numbers up, we get uh, ten, and ten is not divisible by three, nor is it divisible by nine, and therefore, it's not the number twelve thirty four is not divisible by either of those two numbers. So it's very simple: just add the digits, and whatever your sum is. Uh, is will tell you if the sum is a multiple of three, then it's the number was a multiple of three. If the sum is a multiple of nine, then the original number was a multiple of nine as well. And just to get back to the point you made a moment ago, which is a very clever point, there are a few people in this world, who's, and we'll use your expression, whose, name, whose minds are wired differently. I won't mention any names, but uh, someone I know very well, I invited him to the college several years ago, and uh, he did a a sort of a show about what he can do in his mind, and he did one which I'll never forget. He had the math supervisors of New York City in my office, about 75 of them came in, and uh, these are all math teachers, and uh, they are um, uh, clever people, know mathematics and so on, and he said, anybody have a calculator here? And they, uh, two of them came up with a calculator. He said, would someone give me a five-digit number in the audience? And they gave him a five-digit number, just any five-digit number. And, and he says, now kick that into your calculator. The two people came up with the calculator. Kick it in. And as fast as he could, as they could push the button that had the square root symbol on it, which is would give him the answer, he did it in his head. And it was incredible. And then when we asked him, now, look, these are math people. Would you kindly show them how you did this thing? And he went to the board and he wrote the whole board with, with symbols and all kinds of numbers and so on. He did that in a second. It's incredible. So, you know, we need to take that comment you made before to heart because that really is true. Yeah, it's uh, it,
1: one of the things that's a little off track here. But I've always been amazed at the variety of skills that the human race exhibits. And when you look at, you know, when you look at the extremes of abilities that people possess, we're a pretty impressive species. Sure. Absolutely. (laughs) Anyway, continuing, just like a magician is able to guess which card someone has selected... A person familiar with arithmetic can guess which number has been selected. You have a section early in the book with a lot of these tricks, but let us use an easy example. Choose a number, double it, add five, and multiply the number by five. When told the final result, you can quickly tell what the original number is. Could you give us an example of this and tell us why it works?
0: Well, the reason it works is a little bit more complicated. It's actually you're playing with the number 25 is a key number there. But if you take a any number and uh, well, let's just take a number 23 again and double it, we get 46. And add 5, we get 51. And uh, then multiply that by 5, right? Right. We get... Uh, Two fifty-five, and then um, you're told to uh, the the trick is to uh, take away the uh, five, the last digit, and subtract two from the remaining number, which is actually kind of pulling twenty-five away, which is
1: (laughs) that's a cute way to look at it.
0: And you're left with the number twenty-three. So I mean, it sounds complicated on on the radio. On, on your show, but if you try it, it, it works. And as I say, this is one of many of these that we have in a book, and they're very cute, and they are also highly motivating. That's, that's what made me write this book in the first place, because <clears throat> it's so often the case that people are proud to have been lousy in mathematics in school, and, oh, my God, I had to take math. I had to take math because it's one of the subjects that we take from kindergarten through uh, 12th grade, And Aside from English, that's the only other subject that we take right throughout. And yet it's painful because a lot of teachers teach to the test and they don't take a lot of time to make it interesting. And here we have a book where we can have some fun with it and see what's, uh, you know, I'll give you another example that's kind of a fun thing. The number 1089. The number 1089 has a lot of very interesting properties. If you multiply it by 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, you'll notice that each number is a reverse of a number at the bottom of the list, and the middle number is a palindrome, a reverse of itself. But what's particularly interesting is, and you can try this, and your audience can try this, take any three-digit number, any three-digit number except one where the digits are all the same, and then reverse that number. Just flip it around and write in the reverse. Then subtract those two numbers, the big number minus a little number. Then that difference you got, you once again flip it around and add the two numbers. And you'll always end up with 1089. And it's fun. If a teacher would do that with a class, and each student takes a separate number, a different number, and they all do that same thing correctly, they will find they're all getting the same result. So... There you go. It's a, a fun activity. And then the reason for it can be seen with a little bit of algebra. So it motivates uh, why, you know, it, it motivates algebra, if you will, if nothing else. But yep. it also is interesting because then kids go and show, they, if a teacher shows it to the uh, class, the kids go home and show to their parents at dinner or something. Hey, I got to show you this trick. Every all of you take a number, reverse it, subtract, add, and you get to say everybody gets ten eighty nine. You
1: know that's a, what I absolutely loved about your explanation is showing it to an entire class, having them all pick different numbers, and assuming that they did it right, they all end up with ten eighty nine. It's just a great, great thing to do for, you know, for a class. And it's so much more interesting than some of the dry stuff that's done. And also, one of the things that's sort of nice is that um, when you teach a child, for instance, a magic trick, you tell them to rehearse it over and over again so that when they perform it, they're not going to stumble. And if you do the same thing with the arithmetic tricks, the process of rehearsing is actually learning math and becoming comfortable with arithmetic. So this is a wonderful idea, Al. I just love it.
0: Yeah, that, that is, you're absolutely correct.
1: Um, one of the fascinating things I learned in arithmetic was that every fraction, such as five-sixths, is a repeating decimal. For instance, five-sixths is 0.83333. After the eight, it just repeats the pattern. Two sevenths is a little different. It's two eight five seven one four two eight five seven one four, etc. Why is this true for every fraction that after a certain amount of time it just repeats a pattern over and over again?
0: Because irrational numbers is probably the best answer I can give you. If you take a number like pi, three point one four one five nine two six five three five eight nine, and so on and so forth, um, you'll find that there is absolutely no pattern, and it continues forever. If you take a square root of two and or a square root of three, um, you'll find no pattern. I mean, obviously there you can find curious things in them, uh, in the, you know, in the amongst those numbers, but there is no re- repetition because these are irrational numbers. Whereas rational numbers will always have a repeat. So I guess that's about the best answer we can give. You that. <laughs> well.
1: <clears throat> There's a very interesting property of pi. Um, if you were to... Uh, uh, pi and, and a whole bunch of other numbers have this, and I just have to insert this because it's one of my favorite facts about the number pi. If you were to take the ASCII representation for digits and letters and translate every pair of numbers, every two-digit uh, every two-digit number that appears in pi as a letter... Sooner or later, if you go far enough out in Pi, you'll find the life story of Al Pazamentier, including the part you haven't read yet, the, that yeah. you haven't lived I also yet. also
0: used to say that you'd find all the telephone numbers in the Manhattan telephone book.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah but your life story is a lot more interesting than a Manhattan phone book.
0: Well, that's, Actually, you see, that's one of the curious things about infinity, which very few people can really fully understand. But infinity is such a complicated, complex uh, situation that you just uh, sometimes grin and bear it. But uh, moving right along.
1: <laughs> oh, okay. Um, a number of the tricks in your book arise because we our number system has base 10. One that I learned when I was very young, in fact, this may be the first cute thing that I ever learned about arithmetic. My father showed it to me is if you take a two-digit number such as 73, switch the order of the digits, and you'll get 37. Then subtract the smaller from the larger, you'll get 36. And that's always divisible by 9, which is 1 less than 10, the base of our number system. And I you know, I must have been 7 years old when my father showed this to me. And I can just remember, um, because obviously I wasn't capable of understanding the fairly simple algebraic proof on which it was based. I just played with, you know, I took all the two-digit numbers and reversed them and subtracted them. It was just wonderful. But I have a question to ask you. Do you suppose that because we touched on brain wiring before, do you think there is such a thing as a brain wiring where people will like mathematics, or do you think that everybody can learn to like mathematics if they're exposed to it, if they're exposed to it in the right way?
0: Well, that's a very good question. I think that there are people who have the capability of doing very rapid computations. I grew up with a young fellow neighbor of mine who had this capability. And I was always very amazed in elementary school how he was able to do these long multiplication problems in his head. And similar to the one I mentioned before about the guy with the square root of two. uh, Squared a number, but the uh, that's not necessarily a person who's going to like mathematics. Uh, this guy, I met him not many years back, after long after our school days, and he was just a, a clerk in a store and did not have a, a a math background or anything like that. And I was very surprised because I'd think, oh my God, this guy is for sure going to be a a superstar in math and so on. No, it wasn't that at all. I think. The point you raised before is very, very important. The most important aspect of a person's rearing is getting teachers who can motivate their subject matter, be it math, be it history, English, whatever it is. And if you think about it, many people select a career based on their subject of interest or area, and typically if they think hard enough, they'll find a teacher somewhere typically I would guess in the secondary school years who has taken the time to really motivate them in whatever way or hit them the right way and whatever they did, it motivated them. So I think that that's, I actually, that's what motivated me to write this book because I feel that it's never too late to come back in and give this a shot and maybe enjoy it. And I've seen with friends of mine who are not math people, um, and when I show them this stuff, they say, "Why didn't I ever? Why didn't they ever show this to me? How come you, I, I'm so and so many years old and I've never seen any of this stuff? My goodness, those teachers were so, you know, teaching to the testy." And I think this is uh, where, you know, it's like, for example, if you wanted to, um, I mean, simple things uh, like tell a story. For example, they all learn how to. Uh, um, um, an arithmetic progression of numbers that's part of the curriculum and they give them the formula and this is how you do it and so on instead of taking the time to talk about how little mr. Gauss
1: yeah yeah absolutely
0: who was probably the most brilliant German mathematician uh, of living in the uh, few hundred years ago Um, and the story was I guess he was about 10 years old in third grade and the teacher wanted to keep the class busy, and uh, they he said, "Take out your slates, because in those days they didn't use paper, use little slates." And I want you to add up the numbers from one to a hundred. And uh, no sooner did the teacher give this uh, uh, request, and the uh, little Gauss, Carl Friedrich Gauss, hand his hand, and he says, "You keep quiet and let and let everybody finish." I have the answer. No, you'll wait till everybody else. About a half hour later, when the kids did it. He was probably the only one in the class that got it right and uh, the teacher said well how did you do it well did you add 1 plus 2 plus 3 no I didn't add it that way I added 1 plus 100 is 101 2 plus 99 is 101 3 plus ninety eight is 101 so I had 50 times 101 that was the answer and it was a brilliant thing now he was obviously known as one of those people who was able to do in his later life uh, uh, computations in his head and probably that's why he discovered many of the relationships to which we credit for which we credit him now. But nonetheless, when you show that to a class, it opens up their mind as, whoa, there's another way of looking at this problem and then use that to generate the formula instead of saying, Here's the formula. So this is something that I feel strongly about, but I'm hoping that one day I'll convince enough people to do that.
1: Well, I'll tell you Al, you don't have to convince me because I've been doing it ever since I started teaching because also if you are a teacher, that makes it fun. I mean, I never walked into a I, I never walked into a classroom thinking uh that oh god, today is really going to be dull because you can always find something interesting to do. When when I look at, you know, uh you said it uh very well I thought when What helps is if you have teachers who can motivate you, and it doesn't matter what the subject is, it can be chemistry, it can be English literature, the great teachers know what there is to love about their subject, and they're sufficiently passionate about it that they manage to infuse their students with maybe not a love, but at least an appreciation. And it's so easy to do with math. And that's one of the reasons that I said at the top of the interview, parents should look at this book and they should have it because uh, there's a lot of stuff there that the parents can understand and use to help motivate their child because teachers aren't the only people who motivate children. Uh, The parents motivate children as well. And it helps to have the right family background in which the parents are motivating their child to learn. And I was fortunate that was the environment that I was brought up in. Well,
0: I just want to add to that. You're absolutely right, because unfortunately I hear too often neighbors and such when they talk about their kids' work in school. And uh, the classic case I will never forget, kid comes home from school and he gets a 75 in English on a test and a 75 in math or let's say whatever, and the parent says, how could you get a 75 in English? That's incredible. How could you not speak it? And and blast him. 75, am I so glad you passed that test in math? I was not any better than you, and so I'm glad you did. So the, the, the expectation for a kid in math, right from the mother, or father in this case, uh, is so low because they say, hey, She's happy if I get a seventy-five in math. I don't have to struggle, but I better work on the English. In other words, the parent can oftentimes be a turnoff to the student.
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, let's let's discuss a few other things from your book. One of the things that often appeals to people are magic squares. What are magic squares?
0: Oh, that's that's a lot of fun. First of all, there's a history there. Uh, probably the most famous magic square appears in Albrecht Dürer's uh, Melancholia II. Uh, this is, Albrecht Dürer is probably the most famous uh, German artist of all time. Uh, he actually did correspond with uh, da Vinci at one point, but um, the, uh, he drew a lot of very interesting pieces, but this one here shows a, an angel amongst uh, mathematical tools frustrated looks like frustrated uh, sad and in the background is on the wall a square arrangement of numbers from one to 16 uh, four by four of uh, one to 16 arranged in such a way that when you add the numbers in any row or column you get 34 and the diagonals but what da vinci uh, what uh um, dura did was he if you know, if you learn the scheme for constructing magic squares, you find that the two center columns would come out flipped from the way he shows it. He flipped them because he wanted to get fourteen fifteen as the bottom two in the center, because that's the year in which he did it. <laughs> and so. Uh, but his has even more properties. By flipping them, he's got even more properties than the normal 4 by 4 uh, magic square. I mean, it's just an incredible thing because you can find so many patterns. Every, four, every square 4 also adds up to 34 on there. I mean, you can go on and on and on, but it's a lot of fun because kids can find more and more relationships. Like if you take the sum of the squares of the alternate columns, the sum is equal... You know, the first and the third and the second and the fourth, uh, you add those and you get the same, uh, some are squares, some are cubes. It's very, very interesting. But that, that one is probably the most famous of the magic squares. Um, but, you know, there's a whole, there are books written about magic squares. I've written some in some other books, but it's there. <laughs> okay.
1: Um you know, we've spent a lot of time on arithmetical tricks, so let's get on to some other ones. You begin okay. the section on geometrical tricks by discussing optical tricks, which include some which-is-longer illusions. Like most people, I enjoy those, but it seems to me they're more in the realm of how our brains function than mathematics.
0: Yeah, well, those, those optical illusions are exactly what you just said. And they're fun, and they're cute, and it makes you... What what it really does it makes you aware of what you're looking at, and not to always take things for granted that you do. Um, and there, I, there's no way of really describing that orally. You've got to see those things. But there are things in um, in geometry that can be really, um, I'd say, almost mind-boggling. Um, I'll, t- I'll tell a quick story. Um, one of the publishers came out with this geometer sketchpad drawing uh dynamic drawing on a computer oh a few decades ago and i was at a math conference and the uh um head of the publishing company was there at his booth and he comes gotta come over and look at this new program we have we're showing this to everybody it's first time it's coming out now and one of your books was our motivating source for doing this i said okay i'll look at it and i and he said to me uh well, why don't you try it? Here's how you draw a line, and here's how you draw... Da, da, da. I said, okay, let me draw something. So I drew a quadrilateral, a four-sided figure. Just a r- ugly, random quadrilateral. And I said, by the way, how can I get the midpoints of the size? Oh, that's very easy. You just highlight the line, and then you hit the word that says midpoints. I said, fine, I did that. So I got the four midpoints of the size. Then I joined those four midpoints, and obviously... I shouldn't say obviously, but whenever you have a quadrilateral, any kind of quadrilateral, and you join the midpoints of the uh, consecutive sides, you will always end up with a parallelogram. And when I I showed end up with a parallelogram, and he said, you know, you can even change the shape of that original uh, quadrilateral, and you'll still have a parallel. And I did. And all the way at the other end of this large conference hall, I hear yelling and applause and screams. I said, what the heck happened? Oh, my God, I forgot to tell you. What you did on this little screen here was on a gigantic screen all the way through. the other <laughs> way. So it was very impressive. But there are a number of things that you can do in geometry which don't require, um, I mean, we can obviously prove that. I mean, the way we do in the 10th grade, we can easily prove why that's a parallelogram. But the important thing is to show them that there are some amazing things can be done. For example, another one, uh, Morley's theorem is Frank Morley, who was Christopher Morley's father, the famous writer, uh, was a mathematician. And around 1900, he discovered something which is truly amazing. You take any shape triangle you want, any triangle at all, and you trisect the angles. Now, obviously, the purist will say you cannot trisect an angle with straight edge and compasses. Yes, we know that. But you can always use a protractor and get as close as you can to trisecting each of the angles and when you draw those trisectors the adjacent ones will meet at various points and when you connect those three points that they meet you'll always end up with an equilateral triangle no matter what the original shape of the uh the triangle was which is quite an amazing thing there are things in spherical geometry which you know, unfortunately, it used to be a, a part of the high school curriculum and it has been tossed away somewhere. But the, my, my favorite question to people is, which part of the continental United States, the 48 states, is closest to the African continent? And people think about for a moment Said, you mean the 48 states? Yeah, right, okay. Uh, which is close? Oh, well, it must be Florida because it's all the way in the south. No, it's not. Because the sphere is different. And on the sphere, it happens to be Maine.
1: Wow. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that is is astounding.
0: It's a thousand miles closer to Africa than Florida is.
1: Do you know something also that's interesting? You mentioned this. uh, Without a doubt, the toughest math course I've ever taken in my life and that includes uh that includes uh college and graduate school with solid geometry in high school that course was a well i don't want to say it because this is a uh you know children might hear that that was the toughest course that i've ever taken and I I, I look through, they don't teach it anymore. It's like spherical geometry. I learned spherical geometry as part of a plane geometry course, as sort of, you know, the two-week throwaway at the end. But solid geometry was one semester. It was really difficult, and I couldn't find a single place where it's taught anymore. Is it even taught in colleges?
0: Yeah, it's unfortunate because um, I, my career before I, the first six years before I entered the university level I taught in high school and I coached math teams and so on and this was happened to be 1966 I think it was uh, where New York State was going to abandon the course that was the last year they're going to offer the course and I told my math team guys let's meet at lunch and we'll spend two months going through that whole course and they all took the Regis exam and they all got over 90 but it is a great course if it's taught properly, and we come back to that, I hate to say this, but I have a feeling you did not have a very good teacher teaching that solid geometry course, because it is wonderful, and it's very, very unfortunate that it's uh, gone. As a matter of fact, a book of mine that's coming out in the uh, probably in the spring is on three-dimensional geometry, which uh, I invited a number of other mathematician to join in on so it's all about three dimensions very interesting we live in a three-dimensional world so it's kind of important for that purpose
1: well one of my favorite courses to teach is uh, vector is multivariable calculus and I just uh, uh, it's not you know this isn't covered in your book but one of the things that I just love about multivariable calculus is the vector approach to geometry Um, it's uh, it may not be natural but it's a wonderful way to describe, uh, to de- to describe certain aspects of geometry. And it's, uh, uh, it's something that actually, if I were to write a book, I wouldn't write a Calculus 3 book, but I'd consider writing a book on the beauties of vector geometry because it's spectacular. <laughs>
0: That's not bad. That's not bad. Uh, I might say that there are uh, some famous people who really did like mathematics. Uh, for example... It's not that well known, but it is known, that Abraham Lincoln, as a young lawyer uh, riding around horseback, would always have in his saddlebags a copy of Euclid's Elements because he was so enchanted with the logic of the, uh, the, the geometry as he presented it in there. So that there's one example. Or let's take Napoleon as another example. In geometry, there's a theorem... It's named after Napoleon. Now, we're not sure if he did it, or Ponsolet, who was his, uh, uh, enge- his um, artillery engineer, but uh, N- Napoleon takes credit for it, and who would argue with Napoleon in those days? Uh, and it's a lovely uh, relationship, because you take any ugly-looking triangle, and you create an equilateral triangle on each of the three sides, and when you join the far end of the original triangle to the far end of the, uh, of the opposite uh, equilateral triangle, those lines are not only concurrent, they're the same length, all kinds of great things in that, and then many, many more things there. But these are famous people who uh, I guess were good uh, ambassadors for mathematics.
1: Oh, I'm sure. And uh, when you mentioned presidents, one of the things that I've seen is, I think it was Cleveland, who came up with a proof of the Pythagorean theorem.
0: No, it was uh, Garfield. Garfield, Garfield, that's right. James A. Garfield. Thank you. That's a very good example, because he came up with a a procedure for proving the Pythagorean theorem, which some might say is easier than the one that's typically shown to the classes, and it certainly sometimes easier than one that Euclid did so um, it, uh, and he did it he published it in a New England uh, uh, math journal uh, while he was a member of Congress not as president <laughs> he had more important things to do as president before he got shot
1: that well, uh it's it, it, you know it's fascinating to me because uh, when you were discussing Abraham Lincoln carrying a copy of Euclid's elements in his saddlebag I happened to be recently be reading uh, a biography of Bertrand Russell and Bertrand Russell was similarly attracted to Euclid's elements and kept that around and read it when he was uh, when he was a young man because he thought it was so incredibly beautiful.
0: Yeah, but there's a difference when One's a politician and one's a brilliant man. Yeah, They were both brilliant.
1: Yeah, they were both, uh, one's a politician, uh, the other does something constructive. Yeah. Very <laughs> good. Okay. Anyway, um, uh, there's another section of your book which covers things that I thought were, oh, that I've always thought are very intriguing. Logical thinking tricks. One of my favorites is the 12 pennies trick. What is the trick and what's the explanation?
0: Well, I, I would say, suggest that someone actually try it, because it's it's where you take um, some heads and some tails, and you I, I won't go into it because it's an oral thing here. Now, you mix them up, and then you do a, a turnover, and you find you can predict how many where they are, and the way that you can when you do that is to way to understand it, and probably I think the only way is to use Symbols, or I'll say algebra, because it it comes out very clearly that way. Otherwise, it's mind-boggling. But I'll leave that to the folks who, when they look at the book, I think it's number one on the uh, on the logical thinking tricks. So I'll leave that for them. But it's a good one. I'll tell you another one um, that I very much like because it's it it's something that we so clearly overlook in our everyday life. Um, Let's say you're um, in a high school and you have a basketball tournament and uh, you have 25 teams and you only have one gymnasium. So you want to know how many games are we going to have to play until we get a winner. Every time a, a team plays, the loser leaves and it's out. The winner stays on. But how many games are going to be needed to do that? And I've given this to uh, high school students in in gifted high schools, and they typically do it all the same way. They say, okay, we'll take these 12 teams and these 12 teams, and they'll play each other. One team draw, drew a bye. Okay, so we lost 12 right there. Then we have six left, uh, six versus six, with the one that the bye still around somehow, and they keep counting level by level by level by level and then they say, okay, now we have a winner. How many games? We count up all the games and that's the answer. That's a lot of work. You can do this thing in one flash. Because you ask yourself, uh we have twenty-five teams. How many losers will there be? Twenty-four losers, because only one's going to be a winner. How many games do you need to get twenty-four losers? Twenty-four. End of discussion.
1: You, you know, that's an excellent example, but I remember one of the first things I ever did was I learned the sum of the powers of two. And that comes up in the basketball tournament problem, because if you look at, for instance, um, the, uh, uh, the NCAA championship, forget the play-in games, which uh, is sort of something that they added later, most basketball, the NCAA is, starts with 64 teams. And if you look at 60, if you look at adding the powers of 2, 1 plus 2 plus 4 plus 8 plus 16 plus 32, that's the number of, you're adding the number of losers in the NCAA tournament. 32 teams lose in the first round, 16 teams lose in the next round, 8 teams lose in uh, the round of 16, 4 teams lose in the quarterfinal, 2 teams lose in the semis. Um, one team loses in the finals so when you add those numbers and then stick in the one winner you get a total of 64 and so the sum of the powers of two is the next power of two minus one so if you were to add up one plus two plus four plus eight plus 16 plus 32 plus 64 plus 128 it's going to be 255 the next power of two minus one and right. I thought that you know when I, I looked at these patterns when I was younger, that was the first thing that I noticed because it involves an infinite number of truths that for every power of two, if you add up all the power 1 through all the powers of 2, you get the next power of 2 minus 1. How do you prove an infinite number of pr- of truth? And here what you have is you have the basketball tournament providing an environment in which you can see that an infinite number of things are true. And so that's why I love the fact that you put this in the book as well. Well, I'm glad you like it. Oh, I loved it. Um, Most of the logical thinking tricks that you discuss actually involve either arithmetic or algebra or geometry. What do you see the role of logic is in solving these problems rather than one of the disciplines of mathematics?
0: That's a very good question, but, you know, logic um, is in the eyes of the beholder. Some people think logic is good. Some people say, no, I can do it this way and that way, and they really don't want to know anymore. Um, there are, I think a lot of, to convince people, mathematics has a way of doing that because unlike other sciences where there is a lot of speculation I mean, we're living right now in this COVID time where a lot of speculation goes on. Is this the best way of dealing with it the other way and so on? And they keep referring to the science, the science, the science. And yes, it is the science that tells us a lot. But in mathematics, there's no argument. This is the way it is. And you can show this is exactly the way it is. And very often, simple algebra uh, or just, uh, you know, uh, it, it just, it's convincing. Um, you know, there's there's the logic that sometimes comes up and that has been argued time and time again, uh, the Monty Hall problem, which was a, uh, a, a quiz show, if you remember. Um, Still a where, quiz show. Yeah. <laughs> three doors, and uh, Monty Hall was the...
1: Uh, Let's make a deal. That's the quiz show. Yeah.
0: Yeah, he was the moderator, and it's named after him, although he's long since passed. But um, there were three doors, and behind two doors was a donkey, and one door was a car. Someone from the audience came up, and they would pick a door. And then Monty Hall would, knowing where, the, know, this is important, knowing where the car was, he would reveal one of the doors with the monkey. And then the person coming up from the audience would have the choice to stay with the door he selected, or go to the door that he didn't select, and that has been such an argued, and and even mathematicians have argued it. But you know, I, I won't go into what my feeling is about. But you can read about it. Um, it's a very, it, it can be, it can be justified mathematically, and uh, you know, it still gets argued, but. Uh, A lot of what we talk about in mathematics is pretty exact, and there is no other argument because that's the way it is. So that's part of the beauty of the subject, I guess.
1: Yeah, that's one of the things that I always liked about mathematics, is that there's a right answer. Uh, (laughs) And, uh, I mean, there are right answers, and another thing that's interesting about mathematics is people think that all the mathematics that was ever done has been done, and uh, they don't realize how dynamic, um, you know, how dynamic a field of mathematics is um, and that, you know, there are probably more mathematicians alive now than have been alive throughout history simply because, you know, populations expand. But also we're bringing, you know, we're bringing higher education. These are the people who investigate uh, mathematics to more and more people. And the great thing about mathematics is that you absolutely never know where it uh, where it's going to come up. And I remember, I I I suspect that something like this might have happened to you. I wrote a paper, it uh, you know, it got buried. You know, I sent it to this was back in the early seventies. I sent it to a few people who I knew would be interested in it. The journal published it. I got a few requests for it. and back in the day, they would send you fifty paper, ba- you know, paper copies of the article. And I got rid of about ten of them, and the other forty were sitting on my sh- on a shelf somewhere. And all of a sudden, in the late 1970s, I started getting requests from electrical engineers all over the planet asking for copies of this paper, and. I wondered what was going on. Why were they so interested in something that, when I wrote it, had absolutely nothing to do with electrical engineering? And I got an explanation from somebody that what had happened is that electrical engineers were working on something called signal processors at the time, um, and they had discovered that the paper contained a way to suppress, even though I never considered this, to suppress extraneous noise that uh, signal pro, uh, to make signal processors more efficient. And I thought to myself, this has happened to me and it's happened to so many mathematicians in the past that they write something and they don't really think much of it other than the fact that it's interesting and they do it. For instance, a classic example is the differential, the Italian differential geometers of the late 19th century did differential geometry. It was differential geometry. It was pure mathematics. And then lo and behold, Albert Einstein uses it for the theory of relativity happens so often. And that's one of the things that makes mathematics so interesting. And the other is that there are some puzzles that are still the answers to which are still unknown and uh, may forever be unknown. And just to you know, just to tantalize, um, uh, tantalize people. Um, you discuss in your book. You discuss some interesting number sequences, and this might be another way to conclude the Collatz conjecture. Um, the one, you know, the uh, uh, the take a number and either divide it by two or triple it and add one. Are you, you're familiar with this? Yeah, yeah. Why don't you tell readers yeah, about we, this, we, and then we'll conclude. Board.
0: Even more astonishing than that, although the the, the number six one seven four, okay, is a an incredible number. You take any four-digit number, and you uh, arrange the digits in ascending order and descending order, and you subtract it, and you take that answer and you do the same thing, and you keep doing it. Do, keep doing it. Do, till you get the number 6174. And you will get that. It could take you two steps. It could take you 20 steps. But you will get 6174. And when you get 6174 and you do that again, where you write the number in uh, ascending and descending order, you'll get back to 6174 and you get into a loop. And some of these loops are really fun. This one is so curious because it's almost, it's very difficult to... Uh, to justify algebraically. But it's quite an amazing uh, peculiarity within mathematics.
1: Yeah. Um, Al, thank you so much for spending time with us. And um, what I usually do at the end of an interview is what I'd like to do with you. How can listeners contact you?
0: Well, um, my email address is probably the best way to contact me. It's very simple. My initials, A S P. 1818 at gmail.com and i do respond to all emails and i respond very quickly because i'm constantly looking at it and i will if people want to speak with me put their telephone number in or whatever and i'll be happy to contact uh, speak with them so i'm there to try to motivate Folks, to love mathematics.
1: And I can vouch for the fact that Al gets back to you quickly on emails because he gets back to me even before I hit the send. It's pretty incredible. (laughs) Al, thank you so much. Do you have any other projects? Well, I know you discussed that you have a book on vector geometry, on on three-dimensional geometry coming out. Do you have any other projects that you might want to talk about?
0: Oh, my God. Okay, just one. (laughs) <laughs> just one? Yeah, just one. Uh,
1: Otherwise, we'll be here forever. I did
0: one just now, which is be out in the spring, on um, not just the history of mathematics, but history of mathematical aspects, uh, symbols, where the plus sign come from, where the time sign come from, uh, the division sign, the square root sign, uh, What and some of the uh, more popular uh, laws and arrangements and just everything you wanted to know about mathematics and didn't know who to ask so to speak and there were 101 of them (laughs) so it's all short little uh, tidbits about uh, aspects of mathematics that most of which we know about but we don't know the background
1: okay al thank you so much take care
0: my pleasure bye-bye now
1: bye-bye